Amen. How many of y'all are glad you came to church this morning? I am. Yes, I am too. So glad to see you guys. Thanks for joining us online. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're continuing in our series. What is it, John? I don't know. <laughs> make your own mistakes. Don't make mine. Love you, man. Um, and we are going through the entire year. We've had the theme, God first. What does it look like for church? What does it look like for us to put God first? And today, we're continuing in part five of our series, Make Your Own Mistakes, Don't Make Mine. And we're talking about the Peter's denial of Jesus, one of the darkest episodes in his life, probably the darkest episode in his life, biggest mistake he ever made um, right when Jesus was arrested. Uh, P- Peter denied three times that he knew him, threw his best friend under the bus and lived with that for the rest of his life. And he's yelling to us 2,000 years later, make your own mistakes, don't make Mine. And the main thing today is the time to fix the roof is when the sun is shining. It's too late once it starts to rain. Now, obviously, we're not talking about roofs and rain, although in this building, we very well might be, okay? Uh, but uh, that's not what we're talking about today. Uh, in about 16 days, me and two of my friends are going to be going over to visit our mission in India. We have an orphanage over there. We sponsor children. If you have not gotten in on that, you can sponsor a child through, through the Catalyst Orphanage. Um, 100% of what you, what you give goes straight to the kids, unlike other organizations. So we're going to go check up on that. We're going to see that. We're going to uh, visit the least of these. We're going to visit a leper colony and, and, and serve the people. There, we're going to go to a blind colony. Um, the least of these, the most unreached, most unloved people, probably some of the most unreached, unloved people in the world. We're going to get to go see them. But um, as as uh, it's very, very different being among Christians who uh, who are persecuted and who are a minority than it is. Here in America, uh, it's just very different. They read scripture differently. Uh, they worship differently. They do church differently. I was talking with one of the pastors on one of my trips uh, back in 2017, and he said something that just stuck with me. I was, I, was, I was meeting members of his church, and he would introduce, like, every person that I would int- he would introduce me to, he, he said, and this is pastor so-and-so, this is pastor so-and-so, this is pastor so-and-so. And, and every, like, everyone was a pastor. And I, I thought, through maybe my translator, um, you know, maybe, maybe lost in translation. Maybe he means member, not pastor. And the translator, no, 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 he means pastor. And, uh, and, and I, I, I question what, what that was. And, and, and he says, oh, uh, I've ordained them as pastors if the government comes in and shuts us down. Um, if, if the, if when, when the government comes in um, and they shut us down, they arrest me, um, these, these, these people already have their 10 people and their 10 people and their 10 people. That, that, that way, when I'm in jail, I know that my people are being ministered to and being cared for. And he said it like he was going out to lunch or something. It, 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 seriously, they see, they believed in planning out their responses before they happen, because it's a very real possibility. They already had a persecution plan in place. The American church and American Christians can learn an awful lot from them in those situations. So what if he had waited until the government and the secret police showed up? What, 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 what would happen? By then it would been too late. It was already raining. The roof was already leaking. See, the time to fix the roof is when the sun is shining. Once it starts to rain, it's too late. And the, the apostle Peter learned this the hard way. 
right? When it came to someone who loved Jesus with all heart, soul, mind, and strength, there's nobody that could top Peter. He was in Jesus' inner circle. He and Jesus were best friends. Jesus had, had changed his name from Simon to Peter, saying, you are, my, you are the rock on which I'm going to build my church. There is no questioning this guy. He was no ordinary guy. He'd even made bold proclamations in front of everyone about how far he would go to stay with Jesus. And on the Last Supper, uh, Luke 22, verse 31 through 34, the Last Supper where all the disciples were gathered right before Jesus was arrested and sent to the cross. Um, he says this, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. Everybody ever seen a wheat sifter? That's what Satan wants to do to to, to Christians, sift them as wheat. But I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Simon Peter, Lord, I'm ready to go to you for uh, go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. Wow, that's pretty harsh. The guy that said, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go to prison and death with you. He goes, no, no, you're, you're, you're going to say three times, not just once, three times. You don't even know who I am. In just a few minutes, just a few hours, you're going to deny. You're going to throw me under the bus. You're going to hang me out to dry, Peter. And Peter looks back on this as the biggest mistake in Peter's life because what Jesus said came true. A couple verses later, in verse 54 through 62, then seizing him, they led him away and took him to the house of the high priest, meaning Jesus. Peter followed at a distance. And when some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the, in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, this man was with him. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, hey, you're also one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another started, certainly this fellow is with him, for he is Galilean. Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. I want you to remember that. Look straight at him. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you'll disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Now, why did this happen? Why did someone who was of Peter's stature, his love of the Lord, his faith, why did he falter? Was it because he was weak, because he didn't love Jesus, because he wasn't a true believer? Was he fake, as everybody actually talk about today? Was he fake? No, none of that's true. The reason this happened is because he was unprepared. Remember that. He was unprepared, just like most of us average American Christians. Unprepared. He hadn't thought through what he would do when he was questioned. And like so many of us, when the moment hit, he just panicked. He took the path of least resistance. He faltered in the moment, not because he didn't have faith, not because he didn't love Jesus, like so many of us. Simply because he hadn't pre-decided what he was going to do. And that's why he wept bitterly. It wasn't, he, he, was, he didn't weep bitterly because of, of what he had said. Because what he had done wasn't him. He knew it. He knew he'd blown it because what he'd done in the moment of panic was so far from what he was and who he was that he could barely stand it. And Peter will look back on this time decades later, this 20 seconds of his time, as his greatest failure, his biggest mistake. And so, guys, I'm challenging you all today. Christians must decide now in times of comfort what they will do in times of challenge. When it starts to rain, it's too late. You have to decide now when you're sitting in church, 
when there's no one knocking on your door, when you're not being challenged, when you're not in the workplace, when, when, when the sun is shining, that's when you fix the roof. So the first thing that, that if, if Peter says, if I could just go back and do it again, then I'd do three things. One is this, pre-decide what's worth sacrificing for. That's what we have to decide. We have to pre-decide what is worth sacrificing for. Luke 14, 25 to 27, large crowds are traveling with Jesus and, he turn, and turning to them, he said this, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, just even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Now that does not mean Jesus wants you to hate your family, okay? That's not what he is saying. He's saying, listen, if anyone wants to follow me and people as dear to you as your wife your children, your mother and father are holding you back. If you don't choose me over them, if you're not willing to walk away from the most precious things in your life, things you value, follow me, can't be my disciple. That's what Jesus was saying there. It's really interesting that Jesus doesn't say, anyone who wants to show up for a few, a few times per year, you know, Christmas, Easter, uh, anyone who prays a prayer, hey, hey, you're, you're good, come follow me. Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus takes the exact opposite stance. He says, you cannot be my disciple. I'm not looking to fill a quota, Jesus said. Hey, church growth guys, we're not looking to fill a building. I don't care about that. I'm not looking for a full church or full ministry team. He's saying, no, you can't be my disciple unless you're willing to go all the way. I wonder what would happen if churches did that. Well, see, see, how, uh, see if I could write a book about this and market it to pastors, okay? What if I said this? Uh, um, nope, you can't be a member here unless you're willing to go all the way. Right? You can't even be in a community group unless you are willing to go all the way to the cross. And, 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 and you can't be in a community group uh, you, in, in, unless you're willing to carry your cross. You can't even be baptized in here unless you're willing to walk away from mom and dad and wife and children and even your own life and follow Jesus. We'd have an empty building, wouldn't we? If that's the way Christianity was packaged to the average American. But that's exactly what Jesus is saying. He, Jesus looks at us and says, you think I'm looking for a crowd? I'm not looking for a crowd. I'm looking for disciples who will go all the way to the cross with me. That's what I'm looking for. He, he, Jesus looks at, I, I think he would look at us and, and uh, pastors like me and just say, what, what, what are you doing? You, you think I'm looking for, I think I'm begging people to give me an hour a week in worship? You think I'm begging like, oh, thank you so much for showing up. You, it's such a great sight. He says, do you think that that's what I'm doing? No, no, no. I'm telling you, if you aren't willing to come to me and die to yourself, your passions, your desires, your sins, your very life, you can't be my disciple. All right? So Jesus is telling this crowd, decide right now what's worth sacrificing for. Decide now. Before you, before you, before you come to follow me, decide right now what, you're worth, what is worth sacrificing for. And if, if I'm not worth sacrificing for, don't even call yourself a Christian. Don't even come to church. That's what Jesus is saying here. Because if you follow me, it'll, it, 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 it'll, uh, it may cost you your job. Jesus says, will you follow me if it costs me your family? It costs you your family. Uh, Jesus says, will you follow me if you fail a class in school because of your Christian worldview? Uh, or do you lose a college scholarship because the, 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 the uh, anti-Christian uh, committee didn't like what you had to say? Will you follow me if it means calling off a wedding, walking away from your fiance? 
Walking away from, uh, it, it, will you follow me if that's what it takes? If not, you can't be my disciple. So church, Catalyst Christian Church, what's worth sacrificing for? We've had to ask that question as a church. For one, the fact that Jesus is the only son of God and people can only be saved through him, that's worth sacrificing for. We will never stop preaching that message. And that doesn't matter, it doesn't matter if the building is empty, it doesn't matter. We're not compromising that message. Um, uh, we, thereby declaring all of the paths to heaven, salvation, false. Are we willing to sacrifice for that? Are we willing to have people that we love walk out the door because they disagree with that message? That's what Jesus says to do. We would be so much more popular, you guys, if we just agreed that all faiths were the same, all people's beliefs were equally valid, uh, there's no such thing as absolute truth. Hey, what's right for you is right for you. It's not necessarily right for me. If we, if we jumped on that cultural bandwagon, we'd be so much more popular. But then we ask the question, what has adopting that stance gotten us? The church has been, been doing that, been compromising that for 50 years now. What has been the result of that? Has the church since adopting that stance grown? Are, are Christians more dedicated now but from compromising the message, are, are Christians more dedicated now than they were 50 years ago? Um, are disciples being made? Are, are, are people being delivered from addictions and sins and, 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 and everything like that? Are, are, are people, because of that compromising message, hey, what's right for you is right for you. We're not here to judge. Are, are people's lives being changed? Are, 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 are communities going safer? Marriage becoming more loving? Uh, schools having fewer and fewer discipline problems? How are we doing, guys? When the church has adopted that stance, are we, are we knocking it out of the park? No. That stance got, and that's absolutely nothing. See, what I found is that the church can either preach the truth and win people to Christ as well as offend, or we can compromise and be ignored. See, we can either preach the truth and an unbelieving world will get offended, or we cannot preach the truth and an unbelieving world will ignore we won't be embraced by an unbelieving world no matter what we do, so we might as well stay true to the gospel. All right? Remember, when the church marries the world, it finds the romance is totally one-sided. Many of you have a lot going for you, church. Many of you have a lot going for you. And if there's any part of you that you aren't willing to sacrifice, Jesus says you can't be his disciple. There's a lot. A lot of cost involved. My wife comes up to me and says, hey, I can't be married to someone who follows Jesus anymore. It's either me or him. You know what Jesus says to do? Tells me to, to cry as she walks out the door. That's a tough teaching. So you have to decide what is worth sacrificing for now, not in the moment. That's what Peter is yelling to us. The second thing that Peter said, would, would tell us, pre-decide what actions you'll take when a belief of yours is challenged. Predecide now. Before it happens, predecide now. John 11, 5 through 8. I love this. This is great. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, Let's go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, yet you're going to go back. And verse 14 and 16, so he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I'm glad I was not there, so you may believe, but let's go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let's also go that we may die with him. That's why I hate the term doubting Thomas. Thomas was not a doubter at all. 
This is the guy that said, hey, uh, Jesus has hacked off the, the, the people in Judea and they tried to kill him. Not kindly either. Stoning is not a kind way to die. It's basically having rocks hit you and, and, and everything until you die. That's not a nice way to die. And that's what we're going to go face. And Thomas says, hey, you know what? If he's going, we're going to. And let's go die with him. He's pre-deciding what he's going to do in that situation. All right? Um, I'll, I'll stand with you, Jesus, and I'll die with you. He's pre-deciding. He said, I believe Jesus, Son of God. The, that's the action I will take when that belief is tested. So if Peter were here today, if Peter were to walk in this door, y'all, and stand up here on stage, I believe that he would say some things to us. I think he would say this. I wish that campfire setting 2,000 years ago, I wish on my way there, I would have made some decisions. Hey, you know, I'm going to sit down there and they're going to question me because, I mean, Jesus' ministry is public. I was with them. People probably recognize me. And I wish on the way there, I would have said, you know, if they ask me, I'm going to say, yeah, I am his follower. Put me up there with them. Because had I done that, I, would, I wouldn't have made the biggest mistake of, our life, of my life. He would look at our church, I believe, and ask us, are you going to make my mistake? Are you going to walk into a situation not knowing what you're going to do? He would say, church, please decide now. He'd look at the young people in here, the people in school. About a quarter of our church is under the age 18. He'd look at you guys. And he would say this, students, you're in a school system that's growing increasingly hostile to your faith. It's not getting any better. You know, have teachers that will fail you if you take a Christian stance on things, on term papers. Some of you will even go to universities, not all of you, but some of you will go to universities where it's 10 times worse, where Christianity isn't, isn't just shunned, it is openly persecuted. What will you do when a professor with two PhDs, 45 years old, two PhDs, starts deriding your faith? You are an 18-year-old kid with no degree. What are you going to do? You need to decide now what actions you'll take when your beliefs are challenged. He'll look at the young people and say, what, what, are, what will you do when you're required to sign or agree statement to statements that are anti-Christian? You need to decide what action you'll take now. It'll be too late when you're in the classroom. He goes, make, my, make your own mistakes. Don't make mine. I walked into that situation unprepared, not knowing what I was going to do. And I failed. And he would look at the parents in here and say, your kids need your help. You need a family meeting tonight, tonight, not, not a week from now, not a month, but tonight you need a family meeting where you bring up what's going on in schools, what they're going to be facing in college, and you need to decide as a family. Now they need their Christian parents to guide them and tell them what actions to take. You look at the students and say, when I was in this situation, I panicked and I denied Jesus. You, but that wasn't the worst thing. He would look at the students, look at the parents, and he would say, you know what the worst part of that was? It was the look that Jesus gave me. He would probably say, I see that when I go to sleep at night. I see the expression on his face. He knew I'd denied him. He knew I'd panicked. And I wished it was angry or vengeful because that I could have handled. I wish that when he looked at me, he was, he was angry, but he wasn't. 
I could have handled that. But you know what the look was? It was a look of a best friend who'd just been thrown under the bus. It was hurt. It was betrayal. That was the look I got. And for even if it was only five seconds, I will never forget what it looked like. He would say, your Bible's too kind to me, people. It said that I went out and I wept bitterly. That's being kind. He said those were the tears that once they started, they didn't stop because they were, they were from the gut. They were from the heart. It was the ultimate, ultimate grief. It was like losing a spouse or losing a child. And it, it was that kind of thing. The, the, the agony and the pain you feel in your gut, that is something you don't ever want to see. And he would say this, the reason my denial was so bad wasn't because of some rule or some law. It's because it was a relational break. I betrayed a friend. And he said this. He would look at you all and say, all sin is a relational break. Mine just happened to be right where I could see his reaction. I heard a friend, I heard the best friend I ever had, said, you all know that feeling? He will look at people and say, I chose safety over friendship. I threw my best friend to the wolves, pretended I didn't know him, denied when he needed a friend, I wasn't there for him. One of the saddest things, guys, don't make my mistake. Pre-decide so that you never have to see that look. One of the saddest things I ever experienced in seminary several years ago was a breakup a friend and I who had entered seminary together, his name was David, he was going to be a pastor and he, was, he had a fiance. And um, he, was, he, he had asked her to marry and this was the girl he wanted to marry at the time of building a home together. Well, while he was in seminary, he was called to the mission field, not pa to be a pastor here in America, but to the mission field. And his fiance didn't think that was a good idea. And he, he called me after class. He asked me to stay behind with him. We sat there, and he said, I, uh, I'm going to have to break up with her. I'm going to have to call off the wedding. And he said, I don't want you to talk me out of it. He said, this is where God's calling me. This is the hardest decision I've ever had to make. He said, I just want you to sit here with me while I cry, don't say a word. Then I want you to pray for me as I go tell her. And I said, don't you think this is a little intense? What if, what if you know, God can work miracles? What if she comes around? What if she changes her mind, this kind of thing? And he said, we've already been through that. He said, one of the things that I decided when the Lord called me to ministry was that if my wife was not 100% on board. I couldn't do it because I would walk in ministry compromised. He said, I can't do that. So this is what I have to do. He had already pre-decided what he was going to do. One of the hardest things I've ever seen. We need to pre-decide, you all, what we're going to do when our beliefs are challenged. You can't do that in the moment. Peter tried it, failed. Make your own mistakes. Don't make his. And the third thing he would tell us, I believe, is this. We need to pre-decide what consequences you're willing to accept. You need to pre-decide 
what consequences you're willing to accept. Luke 14, 20 through 30. Jesus says this, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation, not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you and saying, that saying this person began to build wasn't able to finish. Jesus says to count the cost before we follow him. He said, this is what's going to happen. You need to sit down. You need to think about that. He's telling us to pre-decide what consequences following him willing to accept. I was never told to do that as a young man. All right? When I, no one ever, when I took my first step in, in high school, when, I, when Jesus reached me and, and changed me and called me to him, not one person sat me down and said, okay, um, let's have a conversation about what you're getting yourself into. No one ever did that. I was so full of joy, I couldn't deny that Jesus was called me. I absolutely hated my sin, hated my old habits. I hated everything I saw my friends doing that I was following along with. I hated all that. I was ready to walk away from it. No one sat me down and said, have you counted the cost? I would have looked at that person and said, consequences? That's not what I've heard in church. All I heard was God loves me and has a plan for me and, and all this great stuff's going to happen. When I follow Jesus, I'm, 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 I mean, I'm just going to be full of joy. I'm, I'm going to live life to the fullest, right? That, that's what being a Christian is. Hmm. One person would say this. Well, some consequences, the person, I wish a person would have said, would, were relatively minor. You willing to be made fun of in college sports locker rooms? And face three years of ridicule because your decision not to have sex with a fiance before marriage? You ready to do that? Because that happened. You ready to have sly comments from your teammates like you're the only girl she's not having sex with? You know that, right? Locker rooms. You know, you ready to have questions from your from your other guy friends saying, hey, Kibler, you're not incapable of closing this deal, are you? You ready for three years of that, Dave? That was relatively minor. You, you, but moving on, Kibler, are you ready for everyone to be weird around you because they know you live by a different set of values? Are, are, are you ready to be left out of things, not invited to things, be shunned by your friends? Are, are, are you ready to lose those friends? Because there are people that like you right now that won't like you, even though you haven't, you, you're still the same person, they won't like you because of your beliefs. Are you ready for that? because that happened. And those are the easy ones. I wish someone would have asked me this question. Are, are, are you ready to be seen as an ignorant, knuckle-dragging uh, uh, Neanderthal because you aren't woke? Are, are, are you ready to be mocked because you believe God created male and female and there are only two genders? Are, are, are you ready to be called names and insulted and lied about because you believe in prayer and that prayer is a constitutionally protected right that is guaranteed in the Constitution? Do you, are you ready uh, to be fired for saying Merry Christmas at your place of business? Um, are, are you ready to be shut out of promotions and denied scholarships to college because of your Christian beliefs? In other words, David, what consequences are you ready to accept? You need to decide that now before you become a Christian, before you start calling Jesus Lord and Savior. What consequences are you willing to accept? Decide now. See, I honestly wish that someone would have done that. It wouldn't have changed anything, but man, I would have respected that. I would have respected that so much. I, I, I really am, am upset with the way the church kind of sugarcoats things. 
and, and makes it sound like you become a Christian, everything's going to be phenomenal. I wish that we would have honest conversations with people and say, listen, you're setting yourself up for a life of hardship and consequence. Are you ready for it? I, I would have respected that. I really would have. I, I would have appreciated the honesty. I wouldn't have changed anything, like I said. Become the Christian, being a Christian was the best uh, decision of my life, and I would never go back uh, to the way I was before, but I would have respected it. Certainly would have appreciated the person telling me the truth. So church, what consequences following Jesus are you ready to accept? That's what Peter's asking us today. If Peter was here, this is what he would say, I think. He would look at us and say, don't throw away eternity for the temporary. Don't throw away your inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for a little bit of time or a little bit of comfort in the temporary. Don't do that. The apostle Paul would agree with him. In 2 Corinthians 4.16, Paul writes this, and I actually laugh when I read this because it's hysterically funny. He said, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Now, why, why is that funny? Because what Paul goes on to write in 2 Corinthians, it's like the worst life ever. Light and momentary troubles. He talks about being shipwrecked, about starving, about getting, getting publicly flogged five times, about being thrown in prison, about being, uh, I mean, it's unreal. He lists all these hardships, and then he has the gall to call them light and momentary troubles. Because he called them that because he had his eyes on eternity, not on the temporary. He says, everything you experience in this world, everything, every consequence that you are scared to accept, church, is light and momentary, is what Paul says. Peter would say this. He goes, I lost my view for eternity. I was sitting around that campfire, and they were, they were, they were identifying me as a, as a believer in Jesus, and I lost my view of eternity, and I, and I just focused on the temporary, and I chose that over my eternity. He said, I sold Jesus out to the temporary. So church, how far will you go? What would it take you to deny Jesus? What, it take, what would it take to get you to deny Jesus? What consequences are just too far, just asking too much, Jesus? You, you're just asking too much. What would it take for you to deny Jesus? You need to decide that now. One of the most confusing statements in the Bible, at least for materialistic Americans like us, is found in the book of Hebrews where, describing early Christians, the writer writes this, for you sympathize with those in prison and you joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property that you may obtain a better inheritance. Now, for us, we wonder what is joyful about having your property confiscated. I don't, I don't know if you ever had something confiscated. It's probably not a, a joyful time. Something stolen from you? That's confusing. I've never known anyone who is joyful about their property being confiscated. But that's because we've lost our view of, of, of eternity. Uh, I, I was reading this when I was on vacation in Hilton Head. Those of you guys who don't know, we, we go down to Hilton Head every year, and we stay in a condo. And the condo has everything furnished. It has the you know, couches and beds and silverware and glasses. We don't have to bring any of that stuff, okay? Now imagine uh, there's a knock at the door. <clears throat> We're there in Hilton Head at the condo on vacation. Knock at the door, open it up, and there's you know, 30 armed FBI agents. And they say, all right, you guys are Christians. We're taking everything in here. We're taking the couch. We're taking the TV, 
We're taking the silverware. We're confiscating everything in this condo. Knock yourself out. It's not even mine. I don't own this stuff, so have at it, man. Hope the couch looks great in your living room. Seriously. That's how you joyfully accept the, consequent, the, the, the confiscation of your property. You don't even own it. It's not yours. We're, not so, we're so focused on eternity that we don't even mind the temporary. That's how the early Christians viewed everything about their lives. They viewed their, their, their actual life, they're actually living, it's on loan from God. They viewed all their property as, uh, it's just, it can't take it with you, but it, I, I am a steward of it. It's going to be someone else's soon. Knock yourself out. That's how they joyfully accepted the, con- the confiscation. Your job, your life, everything you own is on loan. It's borrowed. That's how you joyfully accept that. So in light of eternity, are the consequences that we face here really all that? No. One of the greatest pastors alive today is a man named C.Y. Kim. Uh, he, he, was, uh, he is a North Korean, and he's been doing Christian ministry there for 60 years or so. His son, Thomas Kim, was actually one of our missionaries for VBS a couple years ago. Great, great people. Well, I, I heard him speak at a youth event for middle schoolers when I was doing youth ministry at Southland. Um, to say that, that these middle schoolers were not ready for C.Y. Kim is an understatement, okay? Um, they looked shell-shocked after he told them about what he had been doing over in North Korea. Um, imagine being 12 years old and, and hearing the stories he had to tell. Imagine being a 12-year-old American and, and, and hearing the stories that he dealt with as a North Korean. I, I mean, imagine a bunch of kids whose youth group were mainly, you know, about games and ice cream being told about being thrown in prison and beaten. Well, anyway, so these kids were 12 years old. And see why Kim looked at him. And he goes, when I was 12 years old, me and my sister were in church. And the police came in. This was back in the 50s, maybe. And the, 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 the guy said, the guard said, here's a Bible, spit on it. Everyone who doesn't spit on it is going to get killed immediately. And he said, I was 12, my sister. He said, everybody, all the adults, starting with the pastor, spit on the Bible. He said, me and my sister were the only ones that didn't. So the police took everyone that had spit on the Bible and shot him because we're the only ones left alive that day. And he said this. He said, what did their denial of Jesus get them? Did it get them life? No, it got them death. He told the audience, whether you deny Jesus and get killed by the police, you deny Jesus and die of old age, you still die. He said, denying Jesus doesn't bring life. There's no benefit to denying Jesus. You still die. He said, so stay focused on eternity. Church, three things we need to pre-decide about today, church. Today, not tomorrow, not next week, not next month, today. Number one, you need to pre-decide what's worth sacrificing for. What will you go to the cross for? Second thing, what actions will you take 
when your beliefs are challenged, how far are you willing to go? Jesus asks. And the third, predecide what consequences you're willing to accept. You need to do that now while the sun is shining. Once it starts to rain, it gets too late. And if Peter were here right now, standing on this stage, this is what I believe he would tell us. I'm not asking you what you will do for Christianity or for your Christian faith. I'm asking you what you'll do for a friend. I'm asking you what you will do for a friend. He would look at us and say, I know what I didn't do for my friend. Be better than me. Decide now, when you aren't facing expulsion or firing or jail time, what will you do for a friend named Jesus? Time to fix the roof is when the sun is shining. Once it starts to rain, it's too late, church. God bless. We'll see you next week.